0: The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. I'm going to read from
1: 1 Samuel chapter 1, and I'm going to select just one text for our reading, but it's good to see you here this morning. And I trust that God will have a word for us as we gather here, I, uh... Kind of an honour to be here this morning. Very thankful to Mr. Ellis for the invitation, and trust that God will will meet with us around His Word as we consider it together. First Samuel chapter one, and though we will refer to other portions, let's read verse twenty. Wherefore it came to pass when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord.
0: Amen. You may be seated at this point. One of the mistakes that we can make
1: is that we believe that significant change has to come about from big personalities. We see the big personalities, we see the influence that they sometimes have, and we draw the conclusion that all change, all significant change, must come about through some big personality. When you step into the ministry, the fear that we ought to have is that we begin to think about ourselves, that we must be these big, booming, loud, significant personalities in order to make a difference. It's very dangerous ground. If you assess yourself and your ministry based upon what you can compare yourself against in relation to others, you are probably not going to make the distance when it comes to ministry. And if you do, it may not be for your good. We see great gifts. We see powerful positions. And we think that the key to influencing the world and playing our part And the kingdom is that we be big, our ministries be big, our churches are big, and everything that we endeavor to do is big. Sometimes you may be tested. There may be occasions, there may come about the opportunity for you to select or have put before you a ministry that is larger than perhaps something else. You may have grown up your entire life with a burden for some particular area, maybe a country or specific location geographically. It is in great need of ministers, great need of churches. But as you prepare, as you find yourself aging and growing, you see others go to, let's say, easier places, and something comes before you. And the temptation is to set aside everything that drove your initial desire to enter into the ministry, to set it aside for something that seems easier. You never know how God's going to work, never. And I just say personally, for me to be in Greenville is an unusual thing as far as I'm concerned, because I grew up in Northern Ireland, which is like a nation that's like Greenville. There are churches, everywhere, evangelical churches everywhere. And when I was converted and eventually felt the sense of a call to minister, I wanted to get out of there. That's like the last place on earth that needs another minister is Northern Ireland. So I spent two years in Australia, thought I might return there at some point, took my first call to full-time ministry, pastoral ministry, in Calgary, uh, in Alberta, Canada, and then now I'm in Greenville. And that's the whole story in and of itself, but this is the last place on earth I thought I'd be because it's it's in, a, in town form, it is everything I want it to avoid. So it works the other way too, and the key gentleman and woman is to be surrendered entirely to the Lord, and sometimes what God calls us to in order to make a difference is very simple. Sometimes it's as simple as what Paul records in First Timothy 5.14. I will, therefore, that the younger woman marry bear children guide the house. That's, that's service to the kingdom. That's big ministry as far as God is concerned. Of if they're faithful in marriage, bearing children, guiding the house, we've already been reminded this morning of how the enemy hates fights against these things, these basic aspects of kingdom building. As I thought about coming here then, my mind was drawn to someone that's very simple, someone that would be very ordinary, a woman who had no significant position or power, but had a vision for the kingdom of God that the Lord used powerfully. And so I want us to consider Hannah. She was prepared to make sacrifices that would have ramifications in the kingdom. And if we were writing the story, we wouldn't focus on her. We can understand why we might focus on Samuel, but we wouldn't focus on her. But First Samuel begins out of the gates with the significance of an ordinary person who was faithful in ordinary ways, and the Lord used. And so I want us to think about Hannah, if you were to put a subtitle to it, She Who Prayed With a Vision for God. And note with me, first of all, the context of her prayer. The context of her prayers: a number of things to note here. And that's first to begin with the life in the nation. Life in the nation. Many of you will be aware that the context of our portion here is the latter stage of the judges. And Israel is progressively getting worse. They're on the decline spiritually. Things are not what they ought to be. And in a generation, they're going to seek to show that rejection of God by demanding a king. And the Lord will tell Samuel, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. They're rejecting me. And that's going to come, as I say, just in another generation. Spiritually, it's a dark day. The nation is desperate for a spiritual leader, someone who will speak God's mind We have in chapter 3, verse 1, a little insight into that, where the child Samuel ministered unto the Lord before Eli, and the word of the Lord was precious in those days. There was no open vision. There's no one being faithful, no one speaking the mind of God to a generation that desperately need to hear from God. No one to consult, no one to stand. And even Eli, the high priest, had come to a sad chapter in his life, and lamentable is the condition of his circumstances. His sons, Hophni and Phineas, are ungodly wretches. You have some indication of that in chapter 2. They serve as priests as Shiloh. They profane the sacrifices. You find in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, they're profaning of the offered sacrifices. They profane the sanctuary. Look, Just look at verse 22 of chapter 2. Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto all Israel, and how they lay with the woman that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. These men are wretches. They're meant to be bringing people near to God. They're meant to be presenting the gospel in the old covenant era. They're meant to be helping sinners understand their need for forgiveness and being examples to the flock. Instead, they're doing the opposite. They scorn their father, verse 25 of chapter 2. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearkened not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them. So God, God's working upon their hearts negatively. It wouldn't be surprising if you could put in here that the Lord is hardening their heart, but they're hardening their own hearts long before that too. Their deaths are foretold in verse 34 of chapter 2. So, as I say, life in the nation is not good. The context of Hannah's prayer when she comes to beseech God for a son is one that's very discouraging. And there are lots of applications. It's not like we're looking at our nation today and thinking we're in the halcyon days of American history. Far from it. If you keep your finger upon the spiritual pulse of what's going on every day, you can lament. If you are one who checks Twitter on a daily basis, there'll be enough to grieve your soul
0: every hour of the day. That's life in the nation. Life in the home also is difficult. The most
1: important relationship is that which takes place in the home. That which is reflected in the home is vital between husband and wife. And with regard to Hannah, her husband, Elkanah, Things were largely good. It's not like they were all bad. You'd go to chapter one, verse three, you can see that they worship together. They go yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. They love each other. Verse 4 and 5. When the time was that Alcano El- offered, he gave to, I don't know how you pronounce it, Panina, Panina. It's like one of those names. You get like two or three different ways depending where you are. But give to her and to all her sons and her daughters portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord has shut up her womb. So despite the circumstances, two wives and all that comes with that, this man loves Hannah. The the relationship seems to be good. It's not like the home life is all bad. But the other wife is an adversary to her, verse 6. Her adversary provoked her sore. For to make her fret because the Lord had shut up her womb. So there's a rival here, and Satan is using this to discourage Hannah for sure. But the relationship here isn't all that bad. Things as far as her relationship with her husband isn't all that bad. So they're encouraging things for her. It's not like she it's all bad, but but the grief of her heart. As she comes to worship the Lord, and you take in the context of this whole passage, the grief of her heart is not that God has shut up her womb. I think that's a mistake that we we pick up on when we read this. We think, here's a woman who's grieving because the Lord has shut up her womb. And we'll see in just a moment why I think that's not really the heart of the issue. But she is then a godly woman. That's the context of her prayer. Secondly, the character of her prayer. Here's a woman has this stigma attached because she has borne no children. She's not bitter. I think you can, if you read all the verses, you will see that she's not bitter. But what she does is she takes her burden to the Lord. And as we look at this burden, as she comes in prayer to God, there are lots of helpful things for us to learn from this. First, we might say her prayer was specific. Verse 11, It tells us, she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, and I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. So she's specific, has a burden, a specific burden, and she makes a specific prayer. Now, why do I underline that? I underline it because the temptation in prayer is always to be general. So we say, God bless me today. Well, there's nothing wrong with that prayer. Don't mistake in what I'm saying. But in what ways are you going to discern that blessing? Well, there are general ways in which you might say it. But isn't it far more encouraging to bring a specific request and see a specific answer from the Lord? Is that not what our Lord teaches us? If a son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? No, no. The implication is that we come with specific requests. You have all sorts of examples. You have the woman who comes on behalf of her daughter. She's looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the specific need. You have others right throughout the Gospels. People come to Christ with a specific thing. Not just bless my family, not just bless me, but here, here's the burden. Please intervene in this specific burden. And that's how Hannah comes. Now, brethren, you need to learn to pray this way. You need to learn to enter seed for your own life, your own family, and for the sake of the congregations you may oversee in the future. Learn to pray specifically. I, I encourage every church to have a prayer meeting, multiple prayer meetings, even if possible. Uh, certainly, we do at our church, and every one of them's a blessing. But Prayer meetings are very fragile things. You have to actually teach your people how to pray. One of the things I emphasize is that each of the individuals in the prayer meeting bring their specific burden. Because if you have a whole room full of people that pray for 45 minutes or an hour, and and they're all praying general prayers, Lord bless, just in general ways, it gets old very quickly. And there's no sense of burden, no sense of combining that burden together. But when you have specific people and a woman sobbing over a lost son, the whole church is brought in to bear that burden with her. You have other matters that are brought specifically from the hearts of individuals in the church. The church is bonded by those particular burdens. You have a great example for us in Acts chapter 12, whenever Peter is in prison and the church is scared about what's going to happen because James has just been martyred. And now another leader in the church is going the same way and they're fearful of the future of the church. And so we read there that prayer was made of the church unto God for him. They're gathering together, praying specifically for Peter. God heard prayer. So she's doing the same. She's praying specifically. Learn to pray specific prayers in your life, in your ministry. Verse 27, it gets highlighted of chapter 1. For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition which I asked of him. It just lifts up the heart. I asked specifically for this, and the Lord heard me. What a mercy indeed. So as we consider the character of our prayer, we see that it is specific. We also see that it is submissive. Again, verse 11 of chapter 1. If thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid. If thou wilt. She knows God is sovereign. She knows that. And she is throwing herself at his mercy in this request. And what's
0: fascinating is that she's she's willing, note what she's willing to do, But if she gives, you look at the middle of the verse,
1: verse 11. Well, give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. Now, the implications of that, we know from reading the
0: passage, she's going to give the child over to Eli. Eli. What was his success rate in raising sons? It wasn't very good.
1: But she is so submissive to the Lord, Is trusting even in his providence. If I give him entirely to you, Lord, in this way, and once he is weaned, he is raised by Eli for the service of God. I will trust you even to take care of him and to look after him in the raising of him. Tremendous trust, tremendous submission to God's will and God's sovereignty. But you also note, that her prayer is sincere. Verse eleven through fifteen. There's great sincerity in her prayer. You, you can you, we've already read verse eleven. Continuing verse twelve. It came to pass as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli marked her mouth. Now Hannah she spake in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she had been drunken. And Eli said unto her, How long wilt thou be drunken? Put away thy wine from thee. And Hannah answered and said, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of a sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've poured out my soul before the Lord. She is sincere. She's not asking for a son to boast and brag about. She's not asking for a son so she can go to her rival and silence her. Because if that was the motivation, then what's the response? Well, you don't have as many, do you? You have one child. I have many. It's not going to help any if that is the motivation. That is not the motivation of her heart. She wanted a child to offer that child to God. And the reason for it, I think, if we take in, if you try to feel the context, if you try to feel what's going on, I believe this godly woman understood God's deliverances in the past. Specifically, I believe her mind is upon Samson. Why do I believe that? Because of what she says, what she vows. In verse 11, there shall no razor come upon his head. One of the greatest judges of the past, of the recent past, was Samson. For all his cross he was mightily used God. And he was a Nazarite from the womb. God had come and said, this is how you're going to raise him, and he will remain a Nazarite. And God's hand was upon him. He was powerfully used. The Spirit came upon him in an unusual way and brought deliverance against the enemies, brought a great relief. While he was walking with God, the nation would be pulled towards favor and blessing. And She's thinking back. She knows the record. She's aware of the history. And she is coming and saying, Lord, you did it. Someone like Samson, I'm praying, give me, give me a son who can function in this nation like Samson. And you see your heart. On the occasion of Samson, God says, this is how you're going to raise him. He will be a Nazarite. She's coming voluntarily saying, this is how he's going to live. This is what
0: I desire. So she's not seeking for a boy merely to silence Penina or Penina.
1: She was specifically asking for a boy, for a man, to labor for the spiritual needs in Israel. And I'm going to underline this argument with two further motives. First, look at chapter 1, verse 3 with me. And I want you to ask the question, ask in your mind, as you read the beginning history of 1 Samuel. And it tells us about a man who had two wives, names them, one had children, one didn't. This man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And then it continues
0: on with the history. Why is that there? It's, it's parenthetical. It has no business being there. It, do, it, it
1: really doesn't. There, there's no reason for that. Closing sentence of verse 3 to be there. It, it doesn't flow in the narrative. Except, except that the Spirit of God through the writer of this book is putting in, punctuating this narrative so that you keep in your mind what's going on in the mind of this woman as she comes to worship. What she's seeing as she comes to worship every year. She's seeing this, this is the future of the nation. These are the future spiritual leaders. And every year she comes up, it gets worse. And the stories about their behavior gets worse. And the heart begins to break more and more and more. And it is influencing her burden. Every year, there they are. Eli's getting older. His sons are becoming more wicked. And here's a woman who's feeling this burden for her nation, and it's declining. The spiritual temperature is declining, and she is concerned. That's why it's there. So um, that's one argument, one reason I think is driving the motive, what she's seeing as she comes to worship. The other is what you can, I think, draw from verse eight. So she goes up and she provoked by her adversary. She weeps. She's not eating. Verse 7, verse 8 then says, Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not?
0: And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than ten sons? Now just stop. One need to imagine You're married, especially in this context, this society of this age, when barrenness is seen as a judgment from God. And Elkanah comes and says to this woman, this barren woman, am
1: I not better to thee than ten sons?
0: It is extraordinarily insensitive the burden
1: that she is carrying if the statement comes and originates from him if he is coming and saying to her am I not better than the intent sons if he comes out with that for the first time if that originates from him her response is going to be you insensitive brute of a man do you not understand what we women feel how we sense this
0: desire for children do you not get it But I don't believe he was insensitive. I believe the confusion he is
1: experiencing here is a result of what discussion had transpired previously between the two of them. When he's trying to comfort her with her barreness, when he's trying to encourage her, don't worry, I still love you, Hannah. Don't be worried about it. Don't be concerned about it. And she says, your love
0: to me is better than 10 sons. So what has changed? What has changed? What has changed is the yearly yearly visit to worship
1: and seeing the ungodliness of the age. And Elkanah then confused. Why are you? Why are you burdened about that? I thought we'd talked about this. I, I tried to comfort you. you. You seem comforted by it. In fact, you told me. You told me that that our love. You're, I'm better to the, you than ten sons. So, so I'm confused now, Hannah. What? Why aren't you eating? Why are you sad? Why are you grieving? I say to you that that's driving the burden. This this woman was completely at ease with God's providence in her life until, until she sees
0: the spiritual decline worsen, and that's what's driving this prayer. This woman is burdened about the way things are going. And she's crying to God for a deliverer. She sees no other way out. We need another judge. And no one seems to get it. This woman, Penina, all these children... She
1: doesn't get. She doesn't get the burden. She brags about her children. There's no humility in her heart. She can't seem to see that these blessings are to be raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord to fight the Lord's battles and see what they might accomplish in his kingdom. Instead, they're just trophies for her to boast and cause suffering to me. But again, the suffering wasn't she has children. I don't. It's the fact she doesn't get the burden this This is something that you will sometimes wrestle with Oh, it it can be difficult God's work in the day in which we live and the trials that we face and the burden that has to be felt and brethren, I say to you I say to you, you must be able to carry a burden that others may not be able to understand you live in america you, you have to be optimistic and and i And I think the scriptures allow us to be optimistic, encourage optimism as to what the Lord is going to do. But that optimism should not remove a realistic perspective as to the spiritual temperature of your church, of individuals in your church, or even your wider community. And you need to have broad shoulders and a strong back and learn what it is to carry a sense of burden. Because when I read the scriptures, it is the broken, the people who are broken under a sense of a weight of burden that perhaps no one else even understands. Those are the instruments of change in any generation. Even when it's a woman. She's not priest or prophet or king. But she's one person who feels the very heartbeat of her God and desires. Deliverance for his glory. So that is the character of her prayer. Thirdly and finally, the consequence of her prayer. Well, in verse 19 tells us, first of all, she gets an answer. She rose up in the morning early and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house. And Ramah and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. The Lord remembered her. remembered her. A wonderful little statement, isn't
0: it? a way of reflecting the answer, the Lord remembered her. It doesn't undermine
1: the omniscience of God. God knows everything. It should ever be said that the Lord remembered. That stands to reason. Of course he remembers. He never forgets. But but it, it, it comes. It comes to help us see his particular concern for her. Sees the burden she carries and remembers it. It's like an exodus when he sees the cry of the the children of Israel arise before him and he remembers his covenant, made with the patriarchs. He remembers even the dying thief. Remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He remembers. And so how blessed it is to be remembered. And to be able to have experiences, again, as she records in verse 27, For this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition which I asked of him. She gets an answer. Secondly, she shows appreciation. Chapter 2, the opening 10 verses show appreciation. I'm not going to read all of the verses here as time is moving on. But in the thanksgiving that she offers to God, she makes no mention of the child at all.
0: No mention of him. Now that's the answer, but she doesn't lose sight that
1: the glory and the thanksgiving is to the giver. It's about him, his glory, his preeminence. Her mind has not been so taken up with the child that she's lost sight of the one who has given him. That's how people often are. We come to God with something and then we get what we Desire, And then we, we're so taken up with, the, with what we've received, we, we don't
0: truly appreciate the Lord himself. Thirdly, she pre- expresses anticipation.
1: She gets an answer, she shows appreciation, and she expresses anticipation. Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. The close here of her prayer. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Out of heaven shall he thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and he shall give strength unto his
0: king. Unto his king. What king? What king? This is the time of the judges. What king? And exalt the horn of his Messiah. talk about spiritual perception you talk about an ordinary
1: person understanding the mind of the Lord whose heart is so close to God that what she's praying over is foreshadowing driving towards anticipating a final Messiah this is the first time you have Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures
0: from an ordinary mother, a regular pew warmer in the church. But
1: Eli's not praying this way. The sons are not feeling this way. And everyone else who has all the favors and blessings, no one can see what she sees. No one can feel what she feels. No one understands what she understands.
0: This is a woman with a vision for the kingdom of God.
1: And she sees, and oh, what will be the great day when the king comes.
0: The Messiah brings full deliverance to his people. And he has come.
1: He has come. And we are watching him put his enemies under his feet. We are watching him exercise his dominion. And through ministers, through ordinary men, mostly ordinary men and women, he extends his kingdom. He magnifies his name. He broadens the reach of his church. He gathers in his elect.
0: And he drives the peoples to fall before him. And recognize him as Lord of all. We have
1: so much to learn from ordinary people like this. Living in a dark day.
0: She was living in a dark day. Just like you are. Just as I am.
1: And God is going to raise up through her burden because of the instrumentality of her burden. Oh, I know you can say there's no need to get so worked up. God's got everything in control. See that? See when the sovereignty of God makes you burdenless, makes you have no heart, incapable of seeing what's going on, when the sovereignty of God
0: removes any sense of soul from you, you've misapplied the doctrine. God is so, but he works through people who
1: feel a burden. And who can say truly, I love thy kingdom, Lord? For her, my tears shall fall. May the Lord help us all to be burden bearers in this way. Let's bow
0: together in prayer. Lord, we. We confess the sin of ease
1: and sloth and spiritual numbness. We are like Laodicea. We think we are rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. And we know not that we're wretched and poor and miserable and blind and naked. And you counsel us. You counsel us to repent. You counsel us. For gold tried in the fire, to know what it is to really labor amidst the fires of persecution. God, we pray, bless this body. Use this seminary. Keep it on the straight and narrow. Grant that young men and older may be trained and prepared and raised up, not just to be heartless communicators in the pulpit, but men with broad shoulders, strong backs, and big hearts who bear the burden of our day. Receive our thanks and be with us through the rest of this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.